Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. This is day 60 of the Spanish lockdown and we are currently reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Spain has now been in lockdown for 60 days. That is a lot of days. That's two whole months that we've been indoors. At the beginning, when we were first locked in, it was March, it was still cold. We had the heating on in the flat. I was wearing jumpers and I was covered in blankets when I started recording this podcast. And now it's sunny, there are swifts swirling around. I've been keeping the patio doors open at night to try and get some cool air in the, in the flat because it's starting to get quite warm. That is the difference that has happened. And also now when we're doing our, our evening clapping at eight, every, every day we, we clap at eight to thank the health workers and everybody else who's currently working. Now it's light when we're doing that. When we started back in the beginning, it was still dark. Although I have to say as well at the moment, like last night's turnout for the clapping was not that big. It was basically just me and like one other neighbour, like hardly anybody else is clapping now. I think everybody is quite tired. But we carry on, we carry on staying indoors to protect everyone else and we carry on reading lots of old books aloud, or at least I do. Now I missed yesterday, again, because I'm not very well. I'm still currently not very well. But I'm like, it's day 60, I have to go and record the podcast. Day 60 is a momentous day. I need to go and read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But I am a little bit overwarm and I think my brain is a little bit not working properly. So I apologise if I ramble away and I don't make sense. I do have a little bit of a fever. But it's okay. You know, we'll carry on. I'm sure that reading some adventures under the sea will make me feel better, frankly. And if I had read this yesterday, I, I'd probably be feeling better right now. I mean, I think it has curative properties. Now, the tea that I'm drinking today, I'm going to whip it out of my pocket. Um, <laughs> I don't have hot tea in my pocket. I've got the tea, the loose tea in a, in a bag, in a pot, in a pot, in a bag. See, I'm not very well. In a, in a bag, I have some loose tea. And because today is day 60, I've whipped out a very special tea. I spoke about this, ooh, so many weeks ago. But I spoke about this a while ago in one of the previous seasons of this podcast. This is the Japan Green Gyokuru Premium Tea. It's very special, very expensive tea. I'm trying to remember how much it was when I bought it. Something ridiculous. Like, what does tea normally come in? It's 20 grams. Um, I think I bought 50 grams of tea. No, it wasn't even that much. 25 grams of tea. Or 50. I, anyway, I spent 17 pounds on the tea. That's, that's the conclusion. It was a small amount of tea, and I paid nearly 20 pounds for this. You know, normally, you know, if you bought some tea bags, that's like maybe £1.50 for tea bags. And I spent 17 pounds on a smallish bag of tea. But it lasts a really long time because you can brew it multiple times and it's delicious and it's very good for you. I'm going to read it from the back again. So this is a tea from Japan and um, it's the, the leaves are dark and polished 
and they're grown on carefully shaded tea bushes, which results in an increase in their concentration of amino acids and chlorophyll, which gives it a distinctive flavour and colour. Now, when I bought the tea from Fortnum and Mason's this is and when you go and buy loose leaf teas there you can have a little conversation with the, the masters of tea as I will call them and they wear the most adorable little uniforms with waistcoats and everything it's so British I love it and they'll tell you all about where the tea was grown and how it was picked and what it's good for and they'll give you little um, help and instructions on how to brew it on like little information cards I'd recommend doing it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And they do have cheaper teas. You don't have to buy the most expensive tea like, like I did. But you know, every now and then it's worth paying a lot of money for some really nice tea that just you know, makes your day. I'm sure this is gonna make my day. So I have it here next to me. It's a lightish green color. Mm, smells rich and soothing. I mean, I'm not very good at describing tea. I feel like it's kind of like when you go to a wine tasting, I'm like sniffing it and swirling it around my mug like that. It's very nice. It's sort of um, slightly floral, very light. Now it's also slightly too hot, but as I said before, I have no way of regulating the temperature of my tea. I mean, I guess I could have waited for the water to cool down a bit before I poured it in. That's probably what I should have done, but I have no way of measuring the temperature. So I think it's, where did the bag go? It's supposed to be brewed at 75 degrees Celsius. I have no way of doing that, frankly. Now, what happened in the last episode? So the last episode, Pierre and Nemo and Conciel, and then some random nameless members of the crew, went for a very long walk through an underwater forest. And I was having anxiety on their behalf because they were walking for like eight hours and they didn't get to go to the toilet. And for me, that is a nightmare. So at the beginning, I wanted to be in this boat. I wanted to be on the Nautilus with Nemo having adventures. But if it means having to walk for eight hours, wearing a heavy suit and not getting to go to the toilet, then I change my mind. Let us continue reading. So we are on chapter 17 which is called 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific. And before I start reading, I'm just going to pause briefly and save the segment because my podcast recorder has been acting up and I'm worried that if I read the entire thing, it's going to then crash like it crashed earlier and not save my recording. So I'm going to save this and continue on. Chapter 17, 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific. The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before and I went up onto the platform just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and leant on the cage of the watchlight and gazed abstractedly on the ocean. In the meantime, a number of the sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to draw up the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognised some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, some Sclaves, and a Greek or a Candiote. They were civil and only used that odd language amongst themselves, the origin of which I could not guess, neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. 
They were a kind of shallots, like those on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in their way. That day they brought up curious specimens from those productive coasts. I reckoned that the haul had brought in more than 900 weight of fish. It was a fine haul, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food, and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and some pickled. The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed, I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion, and was preparing to return to my room, when, without further preamble, the captain turned to me, saying, Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods. Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has woke after a quiet night. Look, he continued, it wakes under the caresses of the sun. It is going to renew its diurnal existence. It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organization. It has a pulse, arteries, spasms. And I agree with the learned Maury, who discovered it in a circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals. Yes, the ocean has indeed circulation, and to promote it, the Creator has caused things to multiply in it, caloric, salt, and amiculi. When Captain Nemo th spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses, which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breathe at the surface of the water, free towns, independent cities. Yet who knows whether some despot Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture, then, addressing me as if to chase away some sorrowful thought, Monsieur Arne, he asked, do you know the depth of the ocean? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. Could you tell me them, so that I can suit them to my purpose? These are some, I replied, that I remember. If I am not mistaken, a depth of 800 yards has been found in the North Atlantic, and 2,500 yards in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic, near the 35th parallel, and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards. To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were levelled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain, we shall show you better than that, I hope. As to the mean depth of this part of the Pacific, I tell you, it is only 4,000 yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him and went into the large drawing room. The screw was immediately put in motion and the log gave 20 miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, Captain Nemo was very sparing of his visits. I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart, so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day, for some time, the panels of the drawing room were opened, and, were never and we were never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. 
The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between 100 and 150 yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25%, a temperature that, at this depth, seemed common to all latitudes. At 3 o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 degrees long. On the 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands, where Cook died, February 14th, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to windward Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that form the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side, and the volcanoes that overtop Mount Manoray, which rise 5,000 yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things, the nets brought up were several flaboraia and graceful polypi that are regular to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast. It crossed the equator December 1st in 142 degrees long. And on the 4th of the same month, after crossing rapidly and without anything in particular occurring, we sighted the Marquess group. I saw three mi miles off Martin's Peak in Nukahiba, the largest of the group that belongs to France. I only saw the woody mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to wind. There the nets brought up some beautiful specimens of fish, some with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivaled. Some nearly destitute of scales but of exquisite flavour, others with bony jaws and yellow-tinged gills, as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands protected by the French flag, from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed over 2,000 miles. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing room. Ned Land and Conseil watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs were filled, it kept at a depth of 1,000 yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Massé, The Slaves of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it when Conseil interrupted me. Will Master come here a moment, he said, in a curious voice. What is the matter, Conseil? I want Master to look. I rose, went, and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean, but a sudden thought crossed my mind. A vessel, I said, half aloud. Yes, replied the Canadian, a disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly. Ned Land was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order, and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts, but lying on its side it had filled, and it was heeling over to port. This skeleton of what it had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves. 
but sadder still was the sight of the bridge, where some corpses, bound with ropes, were still lying. I counted five, four men, one of whom was standing at the helm, and a woman standing by the poop, holding an infant in her arms. She was quite young. I could distinguish her features, which the water had not decomposed, by the brilliant light from the Nautilus. In one despairing effort, she had raised her infant above her head, poor little thing, whose arms encircled its mother's neck. The attitude of the four sailors was frightful, distorted as they were by their convulsive movements, whilst making a last effort to free themselves from the cords that bound them to the vessel. The steersman alone, calm, with a grave, clear face, his grey hair glued to his forehead, and his hand clutching the wheel of the helm, seemed even then to be guiding the three broken masts through the depths of the ocean. What a scene! We were dumb. Our hearts beat fast before the shipwreck, taken as it were from life and photographed in its last moments. And I saw already coming toward it with hungry eyes enormous sharks attracted by the human flesh. However, the Nautilus, turning, went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant I read on the stern, the Florida Sunderland. It's the end of the chapter. Ooh, that was pretty grim. Man, I'm also not sure, like, are the people who are on board, like, are they already dead? Or are they dying? I mean, he discovers corpses in the beginning, but then it sounded like they were still moving. He could see them very clearly. Anyway, that was, um, yeah, not great. Let's have some tea. And we will carry on reading chapter 18. Vanekora. This terrible spectacle was the forerunner of the series of maritime catastrophes that the Nautilus was destined to meet with in its route. Just pausing. So I think that probably, rather than you know, just stumbling across these terrible accidents, I think the Nautilus is probably creating them. I think Nemo is sinking these ships. That is my guess. Let us continue. As long as it went through more frequented waters, we often saw the hulls of shipwrecked vessels that were rotting in the depths, and deeper down, cannons, bullets, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron materials eaten up by rust. However, on the 11th of December, we sighted the Pomato Islands, the old dangerous group of Bourganville, that extend over a space of 500 leagues at ESE to WNW. From the island Ducey to that of Lazareff, this group covers an area of 370 square leagues, and it is formed of 60 groups of islands, among which the Gambia group is remarkable, over which France exercises sway. These are coral islands, slowly raised, but continuous, created by the daily work of polypi. Then this new island will be joined later on to the neighbouring groups, and a fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand and New Caledonia, and from thence to the Marquesas. One day, when I was suggesting this theory to Captain Nemo, he replied coldly, The Earth does not want new continents, but new men. Chance had conducted the Nautilus towards the island of clermont Tonnerre one of the most curious of the group that was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. I could study now the Madrepore system, to which are due the islands in this ocean. Madrepores, which must not be mistaken for corals, 
have a tissue lined with a calcareous crust and the modifications of its structure have induced M. Milne Edwards, my worthy master, to class them into five sections. The animaculae that the marine polypus secretes, secret, secretes live by millions at the bottom of their cells. The calcareous deposits become rocks, reefs, and large and small islands. Here they form a ring surrounding a little inland lake that communicates with the sea by means of gaps. There they make barriers of reefs, like those on the coasts of New Caledonia and the various Pomaton Islands. In other places, like those at Reunion and Maurice, they raise fringed reefs, high, straight walls, near which the depth of the ocean is considerable. Some cable lengths off the shores of the island of Clermont, I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopical workers. These walls are especially the work of those madrepores known as milliporas, porites, madrepores, and astreas. These polypi are found particularly in the rough beds of the sea, near the surface, and consequently it is from the upper parts they begin their operations, in which they bury themselves by degrees with the debris of the secretions that support them. Such is, at least, Darwin's theory, who thus explains the formation of the atolls, a superior theory, to my mind, to that given of the foundation of the Madriporaco works, summits of mountains or volcanoes that are submerged some feet below the level of the sea. I could observe closely these curious walls, for perpendicularly they are more than 300 yards deep, and our electric light sheets lighted up this calcareous massive brilliantly. Replying to a question Conceal asked me as to the time these colossal barriers took to be raised, I astonished him much by telling him that learned men reckoned it about the eighth of an inch in a hundred years. Towards evening, Clermont Tonnerre was lost in the distance, and the route of the Nautilus was sensibly changed. After having crossed the Tropic of Capricorn in 135 degrees longitude, it sailed WNW, making again for the tropical zone. Although the summer sun was very strong, we did not suffer from heat, for at 15 or 20 fathoms below the surface, the temperature did not rise above from 10 to 12 degrees. On 15th of December, we left to the east the bewitching group of the societies and the graceful Tahiti, Queen of the Pacific. I saw in the morning, some miles to the windward, the elevated summits of the island. These waters furnished our table with excellent fish, mackerel, bonitos, and some varieties of a sea serpent. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of New Hebrides, discovered by Kiros in 1606, and that Bougainville explored in 1768, and to which Cook gave its present name in 1773. This group is composed principally of nine large islands that form a band of 120 leagues, NNS to SSW, between 15 degrees and 2 degrees S lat, and 164 degrees and 168 degrees long. We passed tolerably near to the islands of Aru that at noon looked like a mass of green woods surmounted by a peak of great height. That day being Christmas Day, Ned Land seemed to regret sorely the non-celebration of Christmas, the family feat of which Protestants are so fond. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week, when on the morning of the 27th he came into the large drawing room, 
always seeming as if he had seen you five minutes before. I was busily tracing the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere. The captain came up to me, put his finger on one spot on the chart, and said this single word. Vanikoro. The effect was magical. It was the name of the islands on which La Paru had been lost. I rose suddenly. The Nautilus has brought us to Vanikoro, I asked. Yes, Professor, said the captain. And I can visit the celebrated islands where the Bossole and the Astrolabe struck. If you like, Professor. When shall we be there? We are there now. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up onto the platform and greedily scanned the horizon. To the N.E., two volcanic islands emerged of unequal size, surrounded by a coral reef that measured 40 miles in circumference. We were close to Vanikoro, really the one to which Germont de Rivelle gave the name of Isle de la Rachelet, and exactly facing the little harbour of Van Nue, situated in 16 degrees 4 est lat and 164 degrees 32 e long. The earth seemed covered with verdure from the shore to the summits of the interior that were crowned by Mount Capogo, 476 feet high. The Nautilus, having passed the outer belts of rocks by a narrow strait, found itself among breakers where the sea was from 30 to 40 fathoms deep. Under the verdant shade of some mangroves, I perceived some savages who appeared greatly surprised at our approach. In the long black body, moving between wind and water, did they not see some formidable cetacean that they regarded with suspicion? Just then, Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the wreck of La Porosée. Only what everyone knows, Captain, I replied. And could you tell me what everyone knows about it? He inquired, ironically. Easily. I related to him all the last works of Dumont de Orville had made known, works from which the following is a brief account. La Perrosse and his second, Captain de Langay, were sent by Louis the Sixteenth. <laughs> Pause there as I worked out the Roman numerals. Louis the Sixteenth, in 1785, on a voyage of circumnavigation. They embarked in the Corvettes Bosset and the Astrolabe, neither of which were again heard of. In 1791, the French government, justly uneasy as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large merchantmen, the Recherche and the Esperance, which left Brest the 28th of September under the command of Bruni de Entrecaste. Two months after, they learned from Bowen, commander of the Albemarle, that the debris of shipwrecked vessels had been seen on the coasts of New Georgia. But de Entrecaste, ignoring this communication, rather uncertain besides, directed his course towards the Admiralty Islands, mentioned in a report of Captain Hunter's as being the place where La Porosse was wrecked. They sought in vain. The Esperance and the Retrosse passed before Vanicoro without stopping there. And in fact, this voyage was most disastrous, as it cost de Entrecaste his life, and those of two of his lieutenants, besides several of his crew. Captain Dillon, a shrewd old Pacific sailor, was the first to find unmistakable traces of the wrecks. On the 15th of May, 1824, his vessel, the St. Patrick, passed close to Tecopia, one of the New Hebrides, 
There a Lascar came alongside in a canoe, sold him the handle of a sword in silver that bore the print of characters engraved on the hilt. The Lascar pretended that six years before, during a stay at Vanikoro, he had seen two Europeans that belonged to some vessels that had run aground on the reefs some years ago. Dylan guessed that he meant La Parose, whose disappearance had troubled the whole world. He tried to get on to Vanikoro, where, according to the Lascar, he would find numerous debris of the wreck, but winds and tides prevented him. Dylan returned to Calcutta. There he interested the Asiatic Society and the Indian Company in his discovery. A vessel to which was given the name of the Rechercé was put at his disposal, and he set out 23rd of January, 1827, accompanied by a French agent. The Rechercé, after touching at several points in the Pacific, cast anchor before Vanikoro, 7th of July, 1827, in that same harbour of Van Nui, where the Nautilus was at this time. There it collected numerous relics of the wreck, iron utensils, anchors, pulley stops, swivel guns, an 18-pound shot, fragments of astronomical instruments, a piece of crown work, and a bronze clock bearing this inscription, Basin Maffei. The mark of the foundry of the arsenal at Brest, about 1785. There could be no further doubt. Dylan, having made all inquiries, stayed in the unlucky place till October. There he quitted Vanikoru and directed his course towards New Zealand, put into Calcutta, 7th of April, 1828, and returned to France, where he was warmly welcomed by Charles X. But at the same time, without knowing Dylan's movements, Dumont de Reville had already set out to find the scene of the wreck, and they had learned from a whaler that some medals and a cross of St. Louis had been found in the hands of some savages of Louisade and New Caledonia. Dumont de Reville, commander of the Astrolabe, had then sailed, and two months after Dylan had left Vanikoro, he put into Hobart Town. There he learned the results of Dylan's inquiries, and found that a certain James Hobbs, second lieutenant of the Union of Calcutta, after landing on an island situated 8 degrees 18 s lat and 156 degrees 30 e long, had seen some iron bars and red stuffs used by the natives of these parts. Dumont de Reville, much perplexed, and not knowing how to credit the reports of low-class journals, decided to fall in Dylan's track. On the 10th of February, 1828, the Astrolabe appeared off and took as guide and interpreter a deserter found on the island, made his way to Vanikoro, sighted it on the 12th inst, lay among the reefs until the 14th, and not until the 20th did he cast anchor within the barrier of the harbour of Vanu. On the 23rd, several officers went round the island and brought back some unimportant trifles. The natives, adopting a system of denials and evasions, refused to take them to the unlucky place. This ambiguous conduct led them to believe that the natives had ill-treated the castaways, and indeed they seemed to fear that Dumont de Reville had come to avenge La Parosse and his unfortunate crew. However, on the 26th, appeased by some presents, and understanding they had no reprisals to fear, they led Monsieur Jarriquet to the scene of the wreck. There, in three or four fathoms of water, between the reefs of Paco and Vanu, lay anchors, cannons, pigs of lead and iron, embedded in the limey concretions. The large boat and the whaler, 
belonging to the Astrolabe were sent to this place, and not without some difficulty, their crews hauled up an anchor weighing 1,800 pounds, a brass gun, some pigs of iron, and two copper swivel guns. Dumont de Reville, questioning the natives, learned, <coughs> learned too that La Porrasse, after losing both his vessels on the reefs of this island, had constructed a smaller boat, only to be lost a second time, where no one knew. But the French government, fearing that Dumont de Reville was not acquainted with Dillon's movements, had sent the sloop Bayonnais, commanded by Leo Garant de Tromelin, to Vanicoro, which had been stationed on the west coast of America. The Bayonnaise cast her anchor before Vanicoro some months after the departure of the Astrolabe, but found no new document, but stated that the savages had respected the monument to La Parose. This, that is the substance of what I told Captain Nemo. So, he said, no one knows now where the third vessel perished that was constructed by the castaways on the island of Vanicoro. No one knows. Captain Nemo said nothing, but signed to me to follow him into the large saloon. The Nautilus sank several yards below the waves, and the panels were opened. I hastened to the aperture, and under the crustaceans of coral, covered with fungi, silifones, alcyons, madrepores, through myriads of charming fish, gerels, glycifridae, pomfridaes, diacopes, and holocentras, I recognised certain debris that the drags had not been able to tear up. Iron stirrups, anchors, cannons, bullets, capstan fittings, the stem of a ship, all objects clearly proving the wreck of some vessel, and now carpeted with living flowers. While I was looking on this desolate scene, Captain Nemo said in a sad voice, Commander Le Parasse set out 7th of December, 1785, with his vessels La Bossole and the Astrolabe. He first cast anchor at Botany Bay, visited the Friendly Isles, New Caledonia, then directed his course towards Santa Cruz, and put into Namuka, one of the Haipai groups. Then his vessels struck on the unknown reefs of Vanicoro. The Bossole, which went first, ran aground on the southerly coast. The Astrolabe went to its help and ran aground too. The first vessel was destroyed almost immediately. The second, stranded under the wind, resisted some days. The natives made the castaways welcome. They installed themselves in the island and constructed a smaller boat with the debris of two large ones. Some sailors stayed willingly at Vanakoro. The others, weak and ill, set out with La Parose. They directed their course toward the Solomon Islands and there perished with everything on the westerly coast of the chief island of the group. Cape's deception and satisfaction. How do you know that? By this, that I found on the spot where was the last wreck. Captain Nemo showed me a tin plate box stamped with the French arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it, and I saw a bundle of papers, yellow but still readable. They were the instructions of the naval minister to Commander La Parose, annotated in the margin in Louis VI. 16th handwriting. Ah, it is a fine death for a sailor, said Captain Nemo at last. A coral tomb makes a quiet grave, and I trust that I and my comrades will find no other. Ooh, end of the chapter. Wow, that's a lot of dates in that chapter, and also like there's a lot of measurements. Like 
For some reason, Pierre knows very precisely how tall everything is and how much everything weighs, which is impressive. That was fun. Let's have some tea. Now, it seems that like sailing around in the ocean in this time period is very dangerous. Like you're very likely to get shipwrecked. And I'm amazed that people keep sending, the countries keep sending out more ships after the ones that have vanished. Like, it's expensive to keep losing all your ships this way. I'm going to stop reading and I will continue in the next episode. I'm not going to say tomorrow because I'm not feeling very well and who knows, I may not be able to do tomorrow. But the next episode, we will continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and chapter four, wait, what was chapter? This? Chapter 19 is called Torres Straits. Mm. I wish you all the best and tune in next time for more adventures under the sea.